The title of this evening's talk is The Unadorned Awareness of What Is. In other words, to put it simpler, is a talk inviting you to see things as they really are. You see, this is a pretty obvious invitation, isn't it? It should go without saying, right? Wrong. Ordinarily, as you, you check it out and you'll see that's the case, we tend to do just the opposite. We adorn, we embellish whatever it is that we perceive and then we turn this fantasy over and over in our mind and in the minds of those who listen to us. The Buddha used the the word in Pali, that's, that was his language, that is papancha, to refer to this habit of turning things over and over in our mind, to this habitual proliferation of thought. And then he invited us to drop the papancha, and connect our mind, our awareness, directly with the actual reality of experience. How? Well, surely by practicing meditation, which is a way of being present with the real. Our direct experience is not of the things out there, but of the impact that our senses have in our cognition. So the practice invites us to focus on being present, not particularly with things out there, but with the actual sensations that we receive through any of the five basic senses. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. Whichever may be more appropriate for the situation we are in. For instance, here during meal times, I encourage you to be present with the tasting and possibly with the smelling. The invitation then is to focus, to concentrate our attention on the sensation that we choose and keep it there, keep it present there, which is not what you, we usually do. We usually, yeah, sure, connect with the sensation. And what do, you do, do we do, do next? We use that sensation as a launching pad, as a platform to launch 
a proliferation of thought, a papancha outburst. Start thinking, oh yes, this tastes so good. Oh yes, I remember once in Sicily, I, I, and, and I, I think I should tell the sisters to do this and that and add this and that. Yeah. The tendency is there. We do, and, and the normal conditions, we do that all the time. But here, we want to cultivate simply presence. Besides the five basic senses I've mentioned, which are located in the body, there is a sixth sense, which is an attribute of the mind. This is a sense that's involved in processing the information we get through those other five senses. At times it's called cognition, that sixth sense. And yes, we cannot ignore that sixth sense at all in the course of practice. We need to become fully aware, too, of the contributions made, not just by the five senses, basic ones, but also by the sixth one. But focusing on the sixth sense is better left for later in the practice. We have been so thoroughly trained in the act of mental proliferation in the course of our life, then if we focus on the sixth sense without enough preparation, we are bound get totally lost in thought once again. So, we begin to practice by focusing on any one of the five senses. The one that seems to provide the best channel to connect directly without embellishments with our experience. Say, the sense of touch. It is most delicate when we receive that sense, we perceive that sense through our hands. They have been trained for exploring things and finding things by touching. But it's certainly not limited to them. Any surface of our body, as you all know very well, will have a tactile experience among contact. So, while sitting, we're bound to, to have all kinds of senses of, of contact with our buttocks, with a chair or, or cushion. Those who sit in chairs with the back of the chair, I can feel it quite clearly. Etc. I mean, my hands are touching each other. Of course, I'm just talking about other parts that are not the hands. Okay. The same sense, sense of touch can put us in intimate contact with the breath because we can sense our breath as the air coming in and out of our nostrils brushes against this soft skin lining the inside of the nostrils. 
Furthermore, touch sensations, tactile sensations, are not limited to the surface of the skin, but they are extended to the inner areas of the body. The receptors receiving those sensations are technically called proprioceptors. proprioceptors. Here comes a scientist in me. <laughs> the information we receive through them tell us about the movement and configuration of our body. So say we are doing walking meditation and if we focus our attention on say on our legs, we can feel the legs moving. Not because we tell them to move, but just the sensations are very clear as the muscles go through the various contortions. The same thing with the breath. We can monitor our breath or sense our breath, I should say, not just through the nostrils, but also through the movements of the chest as it rises and falls, abdomen rises and falls. But it's not the idea of rising and falls. It's the sensations that these sensory receptors pass on to us as they notice how the muscles stretch and contract and so on. We can we can practice that. Let me invite you to take your hand and without looking at it or anything, just open it and close it. Forget the orders you give the hand and just focus on the sensing. Try it. There is a... You can feel. You can know. Directly. So you, you can feel that directly without involving the conceptual mind. Now, when I started meditating, this was impossible to me. I was a, a scientist and a biology, biology teacher, and of course I had to give lectures on which muscles contract and expand when we move this and we move that. I had it all figured out and every time I looked at movements I went back to that scheme, you know. I translated the sensations into a lesson in anatomy and physiology. And during my walkings I tell myself, oh yeah, 
There goes the gluteus contracting. And look at the rectus expanding or contracting, whatever. I, I had no sense of the possibility of being present with my body without reducing it to a scientific analysis. I've learned. Another point I wish to make now is that in the practice of meditation, we need to keep things relatively simple. So focusing on one sensation at the time so we can really do it in depth. And so very often a teacher like me would advise you, invite you to, for instance, focus on the breath. Not just on the breath anywhere, but to choose either the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen as the focus of attention. So much then for sensations of touch. Another sense that often lends itself to being totally with it during sitting meditation is the sense of hearing. The, is the listening to sounds. To hear a sound and be totally with its direct impact. Period. Not asking where it came from. No evaluation of whether we like it or don't like it. Which, of course, is the opposite of what we usually do, you know. Immediately we judge anything that we hear. And also, we need to attribute it to something or somebody. Was that a bird? And which kind of bird? Or was that an insect? And which kind? And so on and so on. Or say here, while on retreat, we hear a car's engine. Or what sounds like a car's engine, I should say. And immediately identify, ah yes, that must be a car. Oh wow, somebody's leaving early. Why on earth would he or she be leaving early? When, etc., etc., etc. And so it goes, so the mind goes. It's true that in ordinary life, we use sounds to monitor what goes on around us. Sure. The door slams. He or she has come back home. I do that with Raquel. Sure. 
it, it's practical, but nothing wrong with that. But the, something wrong with limiting our experience to that. And also, it's true that sound signals may be important. Maybe an alarm clock, maybe a, a fire alarm. You know, next door to our house, we have a, a dog that's tied, and most of the time, uh, free there, but tied up. And he spends so much time barking, and all the time sticking his ears out, trying to find out, on alert for danger. The poor guy, the poor dog, you know, ends up being immersed in the saga of the danger that he's under. That's been its training. Sometimes maybe necessary, as I said. But if we are trapped in that, our life is not going to be very good. So our practice invites us to also inhabit the world in ways that go beyond being always on the alert. It invites us to shift and let experience penetrate our mind unadulterated. As just as they are, not in the service of any agenda. One side benefit of a sense of hearing is that it can also highlight the absence of sounds, that is, the silence that lies underneath the sounds. It is as if we can actually hear the silence, hear the buzz of silence, as sometimes it's called. We can become aware of the auditory gate even when nothing goes through it. We feel the spaciousness that this offers, particularly when there's no sounds occupying that space. It's just silence. This awareness of silence visits us particularly poignantly during retreats. Then, at times, this is a funny thing, can morph into strange inputs. Joseph Goldstein, who has recently published a book called Mindfulness, tells in that book what happened to him during a self-retreat he did at the Inside Meditation Society, where he's one of the main figures. 
of her main teachers. Apparently, the sound of silence coupled with the rumblings of the heating system morphed into the sound of people shouting in the kitchen. Uh, Joseph says he couldn't wait till the end of the retreat to go rushing to the kitchen to see what was going on. He's one of the people responsible for that. Of course, nothing was going on. I had a similar experience once at a retreat in Gaia House in, in England. Only that instead of imagining shouts of people, I imagined that the water tank was overflowing. <laughs> the, the water tank was in the terrace and so I was really very alarmed that water would fall and inundate the whole house. So as soon as the sitting ended, I rushed to the terrace, and there was this, the water tank very quiet, doing nothing. My head was doing a lot. So eventually, I learned to hear silence just as silence. No need to superimpose imaginary sounds on top of it, beyond the buzz of my own auditory system. There's that, sure. This sensing of the absence of sensations is not limited to sounds, of course. Uh, Only we don't have specific words for that. We can call it silence of silence of seeing, silence of taste, silence of smell, silence of touch. For instance, with the visual senses, perhaps a, a little more vivid the experience. When we close our eyes, as we do very often in meditation, sometimes the eyelids, closed eyelids, can become like a screen. And for me, not a screen with figures, but a screen of colors. Obviously, normally, one thing we see, close the eyes, we see black. That's, that's something, that's an experience too. Black, in a way, is a silence of visual images. But sometimes it gets quite vivid too, and colorful and so on. But, you know, it's better not to try to put in words something that really transcends the words. At least, not for me, I, maybe a poet could do it, but I cannot. Okay, so I've talked about choosing objects of attention. 
And that's how we start our practice. We narrow our choices, say I'm going to be with the breath, or with the sounds, whatever. It's, this is something that we should not try to skip. If we try to skip the stage of focusing on specific sensations, chances are that our mind will skip presence altogether, get lost in thought again, judging and criticizing all that comes our way. Engage in the past and future, planning, reviewing, judging, whatever. But if we have given ourselves an opportunity to taste the contentment and the satisfaction that accompanies real present presence, letting experience touches directly. On it shows onto a chosen object of attention, then maybe we are ready to try what's called choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness means instead of predetermining what we are going to be focused on, to just allow whatever sensations, impressions come visiting us and let them come by. You know, it could be an itch, could be a sound, could be a space of silence, could be um, sensation accompanying the breath, as I said, could, could be anything. And we don't determine what. We're just there receiving everything that comes and letting it go as soon as our attention spontaneously is called by something else. Could be a heartbeat. Could be smell in the hall. Sure. Just to be open to that. Be present with that. And so, that's the way how we prepare ourselves to be fully present with whatever comes. And when we discover the way of doing that, it's a real extraordinary joy to be able to truly inhabit our body and through it to truly inhabit the world. To see the world as our habitat and our home, only not in concepts, but firsthand.
sensing our body directly, not letting any sense of otherness to get in between whoever I am and that body. Allowing ourselves to be in constant interplay with the circumstances of our lives instead of the habitual one-way play by which we try to control the circumstances surrounding us. We listen to our body. We share with it. Maybe the little finger of my right hand side, right hand, tell me something, and I respond. There may be a specific message in that. Maybe it's something pressing it. Maybe, but most of the time, there is no message at all. It's simply a communion with that particular part of my body. The message is far less important than the sense of presence between me and my little finger. You know this happens very often I know. Let me backtrack a little bit. Raquel and me by now have three great-grandchildren. And so we've had them, some of them visiting recently. And, you know, and you take this little child and embrace him. And there's nothing in between that child and me. In fact, if I take that child and embrace him, in this case, I'm also embracing my own body, embracing myself. It's so basic, so direct. And this is also what happens with the practice. As we embrace the world, we also embrace ourselves. So, so far I've been talking mostly about the five basic senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. Now let me take a few moments to talk about the sixth sense. Sense. The thinking and feeling sense. About the rumble our mind produces with the material it picks from the other five senses. Surely we need to honor that too. Being careful not to letting let the sixth sense take over as it generally happens is that it has this tendency to do that. But by also also taking into account the weaver 
the loom or the weaver that weaves the fabric using the threads of the five senses. What are the intentions of the weaver? What are the consequences of its weaving? Will the resulting fabric contribute to our suffering or to our freedom? Practice can help us answer that question. In the course of practice, we see ourselves doing the weaving, weaving, and we can become directly aware of the choices we have in that weaving and of their consequences. Much as when exploring the five basic senses in the course of practice, we can, with those basic senses, we can pick up the subtle reverberations, like the beat of the heart or the hum of silence. When exploring the sixth sense, we begin to pick up as well the murmur of our often neglected thoughts. And much as when focusing on the five senses, we become directly aware of the volatility and the impermanence. When focusing on the sixth sense, we become aware of the volatility and impermanence, impermanence of all our thoughts and feelings. Instead of falling for the habitual game plan, because you, you, we use thoughts as part of a game plan, which tries to contrive the finality and permanence. Language plays a key role in this contriving of permanence. As thoughts get frozen into the scaffolding of language, they become the building blocks for constructing our imaginary world. Our practice, on the other hand, shows that it's possible to connect directly with the real without letting any scaffolding get in the way of the fluidity of things. Having had that experience, as the practice lets us have, it may even be possible to cast language in the role of simply facilitating the flow of thoughts and feelings. Not freezing it, but facilitating it. Not creating a scaffolding, but a river that flows. And poets and gifted writers often 
can do that. David Abram is one of them. This is a cutting from the Shambhala song. Take a listen. I admit to some frustration at the apparent necessity of affixing these thoughts on the surface of the page. I'm never entirely happy about this, about having to take this, these visceral experiences, these carnal encounters and hunches and sensorial reflections, these intimacy and pry them out of the loamy soil, soil of my body in order to flatten them between the pages of a book or a magazine. It feels like tearing off pieces of my skin and pasting them onto the surface of the page, of the paper. I have no wish for these reflections to become stuck here, drying out between these pages like pressed flowers. I don't want these notions to desiccate and die for lack of water. Many of my thoughts have been shaped by the forest and the tides. The tides. They have sprouted like lichen among the trunks of trees and on the mottled surface of certain stones. If they become isolated within a purely human language, enclosed within a disembodied field of science and abstract cogitations, well, then those thoughts are not likely to forgive me. Originally invoked by the rhythmic thudding of a raven's wing paddling the air overhead, or by the late afternoon sunlight spilling across the splintered stumps of a clear-cut mountainside, such reflections are already suspicious of me for offering them up as a set of symbols printed, <laughs> printed out in lines upon the page of the screen. They, those, uh, whatever the word was, those thoughts, those, those reflections, they would much prefer that I offer them to you while we are sitting together among the ferns at the edge of a creek, or perhaps while walking in the rain along a city street late at night with the radiance from the street lamps gleaming upon the wet pavement, and every now and then the of tires joining the rise and fall of our voices as we ponder and gesticulate and gaze silently into the electric dark. Wow. So, practice can eventually overcome the barriers created by language, created by the proliferation of language, 
that takes us to the enclave of the unreal. But the extraordinary thing, and that's why I quoted uh, David Abram, is that eventually, even the practice can eventually even turn language into an ally, into a, a way of connecting with the real, with the visceral experience of being alive. So let's sit for a few minutes in reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.